My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. This morning I'll be preaching primarily from the text uh, that we heard read from the book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 12 to 22. And my sermon title this morning is Agents of Reconciliation. So in the chapter uh, that we heard read from the book of Acts, well, the selection of verses from chapter 15, um, we hear of the first council ever called by the church. Uh, called the Jerusalem Council, and the church has continually met throughout the ages to get together to discuss and to decide uh, serious matters of importance, generally setting right something that was overemphasized to the point uh, of, of it or became incorrect and a stumbling block for those uh, in the faith, right? So later on, you know, you have the Council of Nicaea, which is meant to counter the heresy that was uh, being put forth by a bishop named Arius, who said that there was a time when the Son of God was not, that he was a created being, albeit the highest created being, but he was a created being nonetheless, making him not equal with the Father and the Spirit. And the council was called together to settle that once and for all, even though it took a little bit of time for uh, the hubbub to settle down. But the first council we see in church history is right here in Scripture, in the book of Acts, where the apostles met in Jerusalem to discuss and to come to a decision about just what to do about non-Jewish converts who are becoming members of this new burgeoning Jesus movement called the church. So today, we're a little bit far removed from this, their context, but we have to remember their particular context. Jesus said he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, a point that he made fairly often. I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But when you read the Gospels, he sure did like to take long detours through Gentile country. And we see this uh, in stories such as the Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 5. But the first Christians, we have to remember, were Jews. And they saw in Jesus the promises that God had made to Moses and to Abraham and to all of their fathers come to fulfillment. And in their history, there came a long tradition of being God's called out people. That's the whole point of the Abraham story is, is that God is calling out from the nations a new people which finds its fulfillment and its fullness in the church. In the church. And we understand through what we read in texts like this in the book of Acts that, that God is, is uniting all people together, regardless of background, regardless of age or where they come from, in his body, the church. And the text here in Acts tells us earlier that the, uh, the objection to these Gentile converts was coming from the party of the Pharisees. So this might make us pause and say, oh, not these guys again. Always causing trouble, you Pharisees. But we have to remember that the text right here says, but some believers from the party of the Pharisees. That's in verse 5. So we see, right, that there have been Pharisees who have come to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah. And the chief example we could, we could speak to of this would be St. Paul himself, who is here at this council. But he takes the opposite side from some uh, of the believers who are of the party of the Pharisees. 
What they were upset about is that Gentile converts were just being received into the church through baptism. They were not required to be circumcised uh, nor to follow uh, the Mosaic law. Now we already know, brothers and sisters, from a careful reading of the gospel, right, that the Pharisees' problem wasn't their law-keeping in general. The problem was the extraneous additions that they had continually made to the law. They added extra laws, extra rules, extra burdens that did not come from God, right? When God gives the law on the holy mountain to Moses, God doesn't add the extra, I think it was like 600 and something extra laws, right? God doesn't do that. They added over, the, over time these laws that became a burden. And we have examples in the Gospels that Jesus gives. One of whom is how to conveniently getting out of paying tithes to the temple to support the work of the priests. This seems to be something they may have had difficulty letting go of even as after this council, St. Paul and others still had to deal with this issue and with people who took this position. And we can see, the, see this most clearly in St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Right, the epistle to the Galatians. The whole point of that epistle is, do Gentile converts have to become Jews to become Christians? That's how we are meant to understand Galatians. But we see the beginnings of these problems here. So they call a council here in Jerusalem and to hash it out. And it's presided over by St. James. So Barnabas and Paul, they, they testify of their ministry to the Gentiles in this assembly. And, and James, after hearing both sides, he gets up to speak. But it's interesting to know before we get there that the text here in Acts says, as they related Paul and Barnabas, what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now this is not a throwaway line here, brothers and sisters. This is important. The signs and wonders being done among the Gentiles is important. After the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, what do the apostles do in Jerusalem? As laid out in the early book of Acts. Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Right? We get a story of, of Peter and John walking to the temple to pray. And on the way, they meet a, a lame man. And we all remember the story and when I was in Sunday school, many, 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 many years ago, I know I look really young, thank you, many, 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 many years ago, you know, we even had, I'm not going to sing it, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And we know this, and the song is quoting the text, right? And he went walking and leaping and praising God. These signs and wonders continue in Jerusalem. Because all of this, these stories of healing and deliverance and protection and angelic visitations is meant to highlight that the ministry that the apostles are doing among the people of God is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. And that's what we do as the body of Christ. That's what I do as your pastor. That's what you do as members of his body. We are continuing the ministry of Jesus. But through the ministry of you know, Peter and Paul and Barnabas, this ministry has begun to spill over to the Gentiles too. Right? So the same signs and wonders that are being poured out among the believers in Jerusalem are being poured out among the outliers as well. And we know the, the story of, of, of Peter being called to the house of Cornelius. 
right? And Peter goes to the house of Cornelius after being divinely instructed in a vision, right? Not to call things that God has made clean, not to call them unclean. He goes to the house, and as he's preaching Jesus, and as he's doing this, they all are converted, the Holy Spirit falls, they all begin to speak in tongues, and, and Peter's like, well, I mean, it's kind of out of order, but they, <laughs> I mean, they experienced the same thing we did at Pentecost, so I mean, we should probably baptize them. And they go and they baptize this household of Gentiles. So what should the church do? Should these Gentile converts, some of whom were called God-fearers, in that they worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel, but did not become Jews through conversion and circumcision, what should they do? How should they be received? Do they have to go all the way, as it were? No, as it turns out, because as St. Paul himself will mention in his epistles, the circumcision that matters is the one of the hearts. And how, brothers and sisters, do we partake of this inward circumcision? This is not a trick question. He answers this for us in Colossians 2, 11 to 12. In him also you were circumcised, made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, verse 12, having been buried with him in what? Baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That is circumcision for us, brothers and sisters, it is the waters of baptism, which is made available for all. James then makes his judgment on the matter, and everyone assents to his wisdom. Well, then we ask, well, why? Well, like I said earlier, I, I think I mentioned it earlier, if I didn't, I'm sorry, he's the stepbrother of Jesus, right? Tradition says that, that James is the, uh, the Joseph's son through a previous marriage, and that he married um, the Virgin Mary when he was very young, when she was young and he was already advanced in age, which is why we don't see him in the Gospels really anymore after a certain point. But we know that St. James is also the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. And it's important to remember, was James a believer in Jesus when Jesus was ministering in, that, in Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas? No, he wasn't. He wasn't a believer in Jesus at all. Paul says, and we heard the reading this morning, what, became, what was the thing that made James become a believer in his stepbrother being the Messiah that was promised so long ago? Jesus had to appear to him, right, after the resurrection and be like, listen, dude, are you, are you really going to do this? And James was like, okay, okay, uh, okay. Maybe to, to steal a line from C.S. Lewis, the most reluctant convert in all of Jerusalem, perhaps. He's also a man who was well known for his piety to the Lord. He was so well-loved and respected that the very early Christian teacher Origen cites a text from the Jewish historian Josephus, though the passage he cites no longer exists, that the martyrdom of James is what finally brings about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. So James is known for his piety. He's also a pillar of the early church, and he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and this is why his judgment here is accepted. But before he gives his judgment, he cites the Old Testament. He grounds what he's about to say in the sacred scriptures. See last week's sermon on our podcast page if you'd like to hear more about what that means. 
He cites a selection from the book of the prophet Amos, who says that God will rebuild and restore the tent of David. And this is the, the restoration of the Davidic line fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah, and the remnant of the faithful will also be restored as well. And this doesn't stop there. Amos continues and says that, <clears throat> excuse me, all the Gentiles who are called by my name will experience it too. See, James understood the limitations of his people's past and their history of struggling with and against God. Because he himself had, I think, that same experience until his encounter with the risen Christ. And he's so well versed in the Old Testament that he understood the global scale of what the message of Jesus is bringing about. And we heard that read as well, right? This is the gospel that Christ was dead he died on the cross, that Christ was raised and brought back to life again by the power of God, right? That, that he is the son of God and, and believing in him, faith in him, we receive eternal life, right? That's the gospel. Paul says, this is the gospel. This is the thing that unites all people together. The gospel, salvation, forgiveness of sin, new life in the world to come. This is for all humanity. He doesn't say, hey Gentiles, you do you and leave them without any sort of guidance. No. He understands that in the scriptures, the scriptures have spoken specifically to this point by citing the prophet. And you can actually go back and read similar things in other books of the Bible, right? The prophet Isaiah has a lot to say about the Gentiles being brought back in as well. And... Just to make the case even more forcefully, we get stories as well in the Bible of people who are outside of the people of God, who are brought into the people of God, even though they were generally, those specific group of people, were forbidden from being, to become part of the people of God. Case in point, has anybody heard the story of, of, of Ruth? Well, yeah. Like, Ruth is not like a, a, a fun love story for a lifetime, right? There's some intense things going on in the book of Ruth. Ruth is from Moab, and the Moabites were forbidden to become part of the people of Israel. But what's the whole story of the book of Ruth? It's how this Moabitess becomes part of the people of God. What does she say to Naomi? She says, wherever you go, I go. And then what does she say? Your God will be what? My God. She doesn't say, no, Naomi, I'll go with you. But all the gods that I served before, I'm going to bring them with and still serve them. She says, your God will be mine. And because of that, and her redemption by Boaz, she's brought into the, she's brought into the people of God. So we get stories in the Old Testament that attest to this too. That James probably could have cited, but he didn't in, in, the, in the text of the book of Acts. We see this though. But he also understands, right, that it's a burden to ask the, the, the Gentiles, right, to try to fulfill uh, the law of Moses. But he does say this. He says, okay, this is what you need to do. He still gives them something to do. He says, abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, things that have been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath 
in the synagogues. Basically what he's saying is they have the law, right? They've heard it read because many of these Gentile converts were called God-fearers. Like I said earlier, they were Gentile believers in the God of Israel who would come to synagogues. They would fund the synagogues. They would be, try to be part of it, but they would not become full participants or full converts. So they should be familiar with the law. So James is basically saying here is that these Gentiles don't have to follow the pharisaical additions and interpretations of the Mosaic law. That they should follow the Christian interpretation of the Mosaic law. And though they don't need to be circumcised, they are still, there's still things that they need to do. They need to abstain, like I said, from these idolatrous rites and from everything that accompanies it. Right? So there's no pagan temples... No religious festivals, no eating food offered to idols, no participation in anything to do with it. And we see this, uh, Paul talks a lot more about this as well in his first epistle to the Corinthians. They need to abstain from sexual immorality, which in the ancient world was often tied in with idol worship, but it goes beyond that as well. They are to abstain from things strangled and from eating things mixed with blood. This has to do with food that was sacrificed to idols. Uh, life was believed to be in the blood. They're forbidden from eating food with blood. What James does, his brilliance here, is he actually pulls out from the Mosaic law the holiness codes that were originally intended for foreigners living among the Jews. And then what he does is he rightly applies them to Gentile Christians. Brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And in doing so, he's able to reconcile these warring groups of Christians. Those who say that the Gentiles should be included, and those who say the Gentiles can't be included unless they do this. He's able to bring it together by appealing to the law. These codes that were meant for foreigners living among the people of Israel, he takes out, takes those out, and he applies them the Gentile Christians. And as most of us, I'm sure, are Gentile Christians ourselves, that means these still apply to us. And all this matters, brothers and sisters, and the title of my sermon is Agents of Reconciliation. You'd be like, well, none of what you said is any, well, it kind of does. Well, thank you for being with me for, for so long. We're going to get there, right? So James, I think we see him as a pattern for reconciliation between warring groups of Christians. See, what James has to deal with here, he has to deal with one side versus the other side. And here's the thing. The one side was right. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, all these guys, they were right. And this other side, the party of the Pharisees, they were wrong. They were wrong. But, even though these guys were wrong, there's still a kernel of truth in there. There's still something that they identified. Right? Both were committed to Christ. One side was right. One song was wrong. But those who were wrong, they had a point. They had a point. Because they're asking for these things to happen, not because they hate the Gentiles, but they're trying their best to be faithful to the Scriptures. They're trying to be faithful to the Scriptures, and we cannot fault them for that. And James, he reconciles these two different groups, not by compromise, 
Not by compromise. He doesn't say, okay, you guys go. You don't have to circumcise the Gentiles. You guys, when you go your way, you have to do that with these guys over here. He doesn't compromise that way at all. At all. And I think nowadays we would do that. We would say something, well, the Spirit is leading me to say this. It's not the Spirit leading you to see that. It's good intentions and wishful thinking and moonbeams and sparkle ponies, right? A lot of times we, we think the Spirit is leading us in a direction. But if the Spirit is leading us in a direction that contradicts the very scriptures we appeal to, then it's not the Spirit leading us. Even if that comes from a place of being well-intentioned. But what James does is he skillfully applies the scriptures to the issue. I think he recognizes that there are still things that the Gentiles need to do. But he also recognizes that the pharisaical interpretation of the law of Moses is not something meant for them. And for us, brothers and sisters, St. Paul actually says that you, you are an ambassador of something. You are an ambassador of reconciliation. Gino is a, an ambassador of reconciliation. Floyd you and Diane are, are ambassadors of reconciliation. All of you, everybody gathered here is an ambassador of reconciliation. And an ambassador of reconciliation, Paul says, is those who appeal to others and say, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And in our lives as ambassadors of reconciliation, there may be times where we may have to stand between family members who disagree. One might be right, one might be wrong. One might be kind of right, one might be kind of wrong. We may have to, to deal with some, with some gray areas. That's, that, that exists. We may have to stand in between friends, right? People who have false ideas of what the gospel is and what the gospel says and what the gospel is all about. That the gospel doesn't really matter. Like what matters more is, I don't know, protesting and social activity. Yeah, we should work against unjust laws. But at the same time, like, we understand, right, that the message of the church is not political. The message of the church, well, it is political because the kingdom that we're advancing isn't the, the, a progressive kingdom or a conservative kingdom or a libertarian kingdom. The kingdom that we're a part of that's advancing, that we participate in, is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. And our, our loyalty to the kingdom of God far surpasses the loyalty to any political party. So whether on your right or the left, if your church is leading you to embrace pure political progressivism or pure political conservatism at the expense of, of people need to repent of their sins and trust and hope and, and put all of their faith in Christ for salvation, then what are we doing here? What's the point of all this? We are ambassadors of reconciliation. It's our job to appeal to people to be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection, the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And James understood this. And so he matters. And today in the Western church calendar is the feast of St. James. And it's matter. We're talking about this today because his example to us still is so powerful millennia later that he's able to in the midst of conflicting positions stay faithful to the scriptures while helping the church go in a direction that they're uncomfortable with but in a direction that they're uncomfortable with that's still faithful to the scriptures.
And that's important for us. As a church, it's important for us as individuals. It's important for us how we live our lives. As our work of testifying to the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. As we undertake to do that evermore and ever greater. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Zion's Stone Church. We're in the middle of a building repair campaign and if you'd like to help, please go to www.gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We'd appreciate anything you'd be able to donate. If you're ever in the area, you're always welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 10:15 a.m. God bless you.